Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, give ear to the word of God. Malachi says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover uh, the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Well, we just started this short book a little while ago. Uh, it's been a couple weeks since I preached, so I feel like I have to figure out how to do this again. A couple weeks off kind of throws me off, but it was good. Thank you for the time off. So far, what we've seen throughout the book so far, we've seen the Lord through his prophet Malachi rebuking the priests. Uh, he does get around to the people here in our passage, but he rebuked the priests in Israel. Uh, and why did he rebuke them? It's because they had been, among other things, unfaithful as the messengers of the Lord of hosts. And what he tells them is they had failed to instruct the people in the law of God. And when they failed to instruct the people in the law of God, some very bad things came as a result. One of those things was that the worship of God in the temple had been profaned and the name of God had been despised. He says that in chapter 1, verse 6. Well, here in the latter part of chapter 2, we find that not only was the worship of God in the temple allowed to be profaned because of the priests failing to teach God's people the law of God, but it also had another effect in it. It had the effect that it resulted in the spread of immorality among the people of God and such kind of immorality that God in our text calls it an abomination. You know, there's sins and there's sins. And every sin is worthy of God's judgment and wrath. But some sins, God in his word, tries to get our attention, doesn't he? When God calls a particular sin an abomination, uh, that should get our attention. That should make us sit up and take notice. Um, but because of the, their lack of instruction from the priests in God's law, they were committing something that he called an abomination in his sight. And what was that sin? We see in our text this national sin among the people of Israel was that what had to do with their attitude and treatment of the covenant of marriage. It doesn't get any more uh, hitting home than, than that. Throughout the rest of the chapter, we read the whole part uh, this morning. We're only going to go through the first couple verses or so. Um, throughout this chapter, we can see how seriously God takes the covenant of marriage. 
marriage that he instituted, that God himself has created at the beginning. And we're going to see how seriously he takes these sins in this area of our lives. We're going to see some of God's purposes throughout these verses, God's purposes for why he made marriage in the first place. And in many ways, verses 10 through 16 of Malachi chapter 2, along with some other passages, in some ways should be foundational for us as Christians, if you're a believer in Christ, for how we are to view marriage. We're not going to cover all those bases this morning, but Lord willing, we'll see that uh, this morning as well as when we get through the rest of this passage through verse 16 in the weeks to come. And there are, as we might have, you might have picked up on this as I was reading, there are two interconnected sins, two related sins that they were committing that the Lord rebukes them for here in verses 10 through 16. One commentator writes this. He says, in Malachi's context, God raises two specific issues related to marriage in this passage. Men were choosing to marry women from outside the covenant community, verse 11, and were also divorcing their wives, verse 14. And he says these two sins were not unrelated. Men were divorcing wives from within the community of faith to whom they had been married as young people in order to marry someone else from outside the covenant community. So you could say they were divorcing believing wives and marrying unbelieving wives on top of it. They were compounding their sin twice over. So the sin of believers marrying unbelievers or marrying pagans is what's addressed in our text this morning in verses 10 through 12, while the related sin of divorce is, re- is, is dealt with more fully in verses 13 to 16. So we'll look at that and if that part in a future sermon or two. But we're going to spend most of our time looking at verses 10 through 12 together this morning, dealing with the sin of believers marrying uh, unbelievers. So the first thing you might notice in the text is that God tells his people that they in some way had profaned or defiled his covenant. Like, there you see right away, you know, if we think of marriage as just a compact or contract between people on a civic level, we can see how bad it can be. When God says, no, 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 it's more than that. You've you've broken my covenant. Like, that raises the bar quite a bit, doesn't it? That makes it much more serious. He says they had profaned or defiled his covenant. Whatever they had done, uh, it was no small sin in the eyes of God. Look at verse 10. He says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning, there he says it, profaning the covenant of our fathers. Now, I don't know what translation you're all reading, if you have King James or NIV or New King James or whatever the case, but if you had more than one of them spread out in front of you, you might notice some differences in how they're translating certain things. Or really, one of the differences is you might see the word father with a capital F. Some have a small case, lowercase, some have capital. Now, in the Hebrew and in the Greek of your Old and New Testaments, Uh, There was no such thing really. There is capital letters in Greek, but uh, in the Hebrew text, there's nothing to indicate capital as opposed to not. And so the translators had to do their best uh, to, to it's kind of interpreting it for you and saying whether it's capital F, meaning God, or whether it's lowercase uh, f and how it's to be understood. Now, it could refer to one of two two individuals. It It could refer to Abraham. 
their one father being Abraham, the father of the Jews, or it could refer to God, with a capital F for father, as their heavenly father. Now, no less a scholar than John Calvin opts for the, pre, the, the prior of those two things, that it really refers to Abraham, and there's some, there's some logic to that. I think he may be right, and others take it as speaking of God. Uh, I'm going to cut the, the middle, the via media, they say, you know, the middle path. Uh, either way, whether you take it as referring to God, capital F Father, or whether you take it as referring to Abraham, the main point remains. The main point is that uh, God was speaking and emphasizing uh, the covenant that he had made with his people. If it's Abraham, it shows the, the covenant that God made with Abraham that was passed down to his descendants. And, and either way, or whether it's God, that the main emphasis he makes here is that God had made a covenant with his people starting with Abraham and his people, many of them, had violated that covenant and profaned it in the ways that they had treated their wives. Likewise, when the prophet Malachi says to the people, has not one God created us? And it's the same word found in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, the idea in mind here is probably not just the general truth, as true as it is, that God had literally created each one of them, uh, you know, but I think the idea here is that God had, had established them and had created them as a people. He's talking about God's covenant people, not just people in general. And so he's saying that has not one God, you know, one father, one God, has not one God created them? Uh, you know, Israel was the church in the Old Testament. And as the church in the Old Testament, it was the creation of God himself. God had established them as his redeemed covenant people. That, I think, is what he is saying here in our text in verse 10. Now, this think about that. That's a tremendous privilege. We, we share a similar privilege, those of us who know Christ and have been added to God's church. Uh, but it carried along with it various ethical uh, obligations in walking before God and being blameless. Remember what God told Abraham? Walk before me and be blameless. Well, the same command in different wording sometimes is given throughout the scriptures to God's redeemed people. We, we as Christians today are to follow that same commandment. God, by his mercy, saves us but grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And what do we do? We show our gratitude. We are to show our gratitude for that salvation by walking before God and being blameless. Not perfect. You'll never be sinless in this life. But we are to sincerely make the effort to, to follow God and his ways in how we live. And that, that has to do, first and foremost, in a lot of ways, with your most important human relationship with your family and with your, your marriage. Um, you know, think about this. Your, your marriage and your family, if you are married, if you have kids, uh, is, it's, it's one of the most important aspects of your Christian life. And that's not just an Old Testament thing, is it? It's a New Testament thing as well. You know, many of the epistles in the New Testament uh, include explicit instructions and commandments regarding husbands and wives and parents and children. You almost would have a harder time finding one that doesn't than one that does. It's so, such a common thing, and it shouldn't surprise us that that's the case, should it? The grace of God in Christ should have a profound effect on us, on our marriages, and on our families. And the prophet sums this matter up by saying this. You know, he says, have, have we not one father? Has not one God created us? And he says, why then, if this is true, why then are we faithless? 
to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers. In other words, whatever it was that they were guilty of doing, and you know, as we go through the text, he hasn't even said it yet. He's just kind of priming the pump. Uh, whatever they were doing was a contradiction and a violation of the covenant that God had made with them. So, you know, imagine they're, 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 maybe they're gathered in the temple and Malachi is saying this or reading it to them. We don't know. They don't even know what they've done yet. But God is describing it in such terms as to grab their attention. He's kind of grabbing them by the collar, so to speak, and, say, and shaking them and saying, you're doing something really wrong here. And he's painting the picture of what that of what that is. If they were in covenant with God and so also in covenant with each other, how was it that they could act so faithlessly or some translations say treacherously with one another in profaning the covenant of their fathers? Now, notice this. It wasn't just a sin against God, although it was. He says they were faithless to one another. You see, the, you see, the, you see the, the difference there. This wasn't just a sin against God, although it certainly was that. They were acting, in whatever they were doing, they were acting treacherously toward each other. This wasn't a private sin that involved just the people directly involved. This, this was not a sin that left others around it untouched and unscathed. Really, none of our sins do. We fool ourselves if we think that, well, this sin, this just involves me and the person involved in it. No, it, it affects everyone in your family and in the church as well. In our, in our day, many people, even professing Christians, tend to view the various sexual sins and sins regarding marriage as kind of private matters that have little or no consequence to others around them. But that's never really the case, is it? It's never really the case. Such sins bring collateral damage of many kinds. To profane the covenant brings consequences and in their case, and in some ways, I think in our own nation's case as well, it brings chastisement from God. Some of it's already been described in the letter, and some of it we're going to see as we go through uh, further into the book. And think about this. Was that not already presently the case in Malachi's day? He says it right in the letter, right in our passage, doesn't he? You know, was the heavy hand of God's fatherly displeasure not already evident among the people of Israel at the time when Malachi wrote this letter, both to the people and the priests. There, you know, it wasn't just the priests. It wasn't just the people. You know, the priests were kind of the, the bad fountainhead of all this. They weren't doing their jobs. But, but God, God addresses both people and priests. He gets the priests first, but he addresses both in short, in short order. You know, uh, God told the priests back in chapter 1 and into chapter 2 that he would curse their blessings because of what they were doing. Uh, he said he had already begun to do that because they hadn't taken his command to heart. Chapter 2, verse 2. Think about hearing the priests of all people, the ones who were you know, administrating the temple sacrifices and the worship in the temple. You know, Think of them as kind of the pastors of their day. God tells them first, because they're responsible, he says he's going to curse their blessings. And he tells them he'd already started to do it. The expectation is they would know, they would perceive what he's talking about. They would know what these curses would have been on their blessings. Likewise, in verse 13 of our text, we're told that the people, what, covered the Lord's altar with tears. They covered the Lord's altar with tears. Why? 
because he no longer regarded their offering or accepted it with favor from their hand. Now, we don't know what this favor was they expected to to receive, but it's kind of like when you pray and you feel like God's not listening. That you, you feel like the, the heavens, they say, are brass and your prayers are just bouncing off. Like that's the, that's the picture I think that's being painted here. They're weeping. They're covering his altar with tears. They're going to church. They're going to the altar. They're making sacrifices. They're crying over the lack of blessing. Uh, that, that is the picture going on here uh, with the priests as well as with the people. They, they cried and wept because God's hand of blessing did not seem to be present. Now think about this. It's easy for us to kind of think of people in that situation as people that they're not going to church. They're not hearing the word of God. They're not worshiping. They're not, you know, these people worshiped, at least outwardly, right? They went to the temple. They gave sacrifices in the temple. Now, we've seen in chapter one that those sacrifices weren't necessarily what they should have been giving. Uh, they no doubt were praying. Think about this, too. They were, they were, you know, cold and informal. They were actually, it says, weeping or crying in some regard related to their worship. But their worship, in some ways, was formal. It was hollow. And I think in some ways the point is, if I can make up a word, it was transactional. Their worship was transactional. What I mean by that, it was probably intended to cover up for their ongoing sins and to, in some ways, I don't know how else to say it, kind of uh, bargain for or purchase God's blessing for their worldly prosperity or so they had hoped. You get the picture? Well, we're going, you know, God, God obviously loves us. He's favored us. He's allowed us to come back from captivity in Babylon and rebuild the temple. We're offering sacrifices. We're doing our part. And God's not doing what? His part. I, it's, it's, I do this and God is supposed to do that. We never think like that, right? That's just an Old Testament thing. No, we think like that sometimes too. I'm doing my part. And they were weeping over it. How come God isn't you know, hearing from heaven, but they weren't repenting of their sins? And so Malachi comes here by God's grace to call them to repentance. It's what the prophets mainly did. If there was one message of all the Old Testament prophets as well as the New Testament apostles, that main message could be summed up in one word, I think. Repent. Repent and believe. Turn back to God. So they were weeping over it, and yet they didn't weep over their sins. And so they didn't weep over their sins. They wept over their lack of prosperity, whether that be national or personal or both. You know, it, it, I think I can't help but think that in some ways that that sounds very familiar. I don't know about you, but I, as I've been reading through the book of Malachi and, and preparing to preach, you know, you have to preach to yourself first before you preach to somebody else. I've seen these same tendencies in my own heart. I don't know if you have as well in your own hearts. You see what's going on around us in our country and you think, oh, why has God removed his hand of blessing? But are we weeping over the sins that have brought that lack of blessing and God brought God's hand of chastisement? We should weep over our sins far more than over our sufferings, both personally as well as nationally. Because the real problem is the sin, not the suffering. The suffering is the symptom, so to speak, of the sin. Well, the second thing I want to look at in verses 11 to 12 is the, is the abomination that was being done in Israel. Keep in mind that in, in verse 10, which we just looked at, you know, Malachi still hasn't quite said what the sin is yet. He's telling him, you violated the covenant, profaned it, 
And then he says uh, something even more. He kind of doubles down before he goes on to tell him what the sin was that had provoked God's fatherly displeasure against them. Look at verse 11. He says, Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. God loves his house. God loves his church. And has what? Married the daughter of a foreign god. So if you think geographically, I know this is not easy to do sometimes, especially in the prophets. Judah is one of the tribes of Israel. It's also a, a, a term that's used for the southern kingdom, the southern tribes where Jerusalem was. And then Israel, it can mean the whole, the whole shebang, or it can mean the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the north, uh, the ones who worshipped at Samaria. Remember, the northern kingdom was taken into captivity by Assyria, and the southern kingdom of Judah was eventually taken captive by Babylon. So at some point, the whole lot of them were taken away from the land. The land sort of spewed them out because of their immorality and idolatry. And then God, in his grace, sent them back, and they were allowed to rebuild the temple. So he includes all of them, Judah, Israel, Jerusalem, uh, all of it. And it says they have committed an abomination. An abomination had been done in Israel and even in Jerusalem, the capital where the temple was. So think about this. If the Lord didn't have their attention before, he certainly had their attention, any of them, with any kind of heart and conscience. Now, he tells them they hadn't just been faithless, but they had committed an abomination before God. An abomination. Now, what, what is an abomination? You know, that's a word that we, we don't use much. A lot of words in the Bible that have fallen into disuse in some ways. Um, and it's not the easiest term, I think, to define. It's, it's kind of like that. You kind of know it when you see it. We all have an idea of what it means. We know it's really bad. Um, various Bible dictionaries can be help, helpful or not very helpful sometimes. Um, but what is an abomination? Um, I think at its heart, when you boil it down, it's something that is highly offensive to God and something that provokes his holy wrath. All sin provokes God's wrath. But some sins are more sinful than others. Some God puts at a, at a higher level or lower level, depending on how you want to look at it, than others. Uh, you know, in, in the Old Testament, remember in the book of Exodus, uh, it, it actually used the word abomination for people, too. It said that the Egyptians didn't like shepherds. And so that's one of the reasons the people of Israel settled, I think it was in Goshen. They had to settle with their sheep somewhere else because it says that they say that the shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. It really, I don't know why, but it really offended them. I think it's more than just thinking it was gross. They, they couldn't stand the sight of shepherds for some reason. We don't know why that is. Uh, but in, when it comes to God's sight, when God calls something an abomination, that should grab our attention. That should be something that we dare not take lightly. You know, there are many, many things, many sins that the Bible speaks of in this way. Uh, the book of Proverbs sometimes talks about certain things being an abomination. When we see this word used in the scriptures, it should grab our attention and hold it. You know, if we see a sin, a particular sin spoken in scripture as an abomination in God's sight, we should take that sin very seriously. And to the degree that we fail to do that, uh, or that we take such a sin lightly, goes to show just how much we need to have our minds renewed by the word and spirit of God. 
I don't think it would take much time to, or maybe it would take too much time to go through the list of sins that our culture around us, and some churches even, have taken lightly and have even called not sinful at all, that God's word calls an abomination. And we are afraid to say some of these things for, for giving offense. Um, I'll list a few, and I won't just single that one out, but Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, as well as Leviticus 20, verse 13, state, in no uncertain terms, that God views homosexuality as an abomination. He doesn't mince words. He calls it that. And we dare not call it something else. Uh, it's something to be repented of. God's mercy does extend to those. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, including that sin, among others, he says, and such were some of you. So we as Christians should never write people off and say, oh, they can't be saved. No, even the first century you know, things aren't that much different than they are now. The same sins, the same kinds of sinners abound everywhere, and God saves a lot of those same sinners just as he saved you and I. Uh, but we shouldn't call it, you don't, you don't bring someone to faith in Christ by watering down what the Bible says about a particular sin. You're not doing anybody any favors by doing that. You give them the gospel, which is the hope of, of salvation. So God says he, he views that as an abomination. In fact, in Israel, it was a death penalty offense. There's no getting around how serious it, it was and is. Deuteronomy 7.25 says that carved images of pagan gods were to be burned with fire and were not to be coveted for their silver and gold. Why? For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Idolatry. Even beautiful statues used in idolatry it's a stench in the nose of God. It is an abomination in his sight, no matter how beautiful it may be. It could be solid gold to such a degree that we might say, like the Israelites were tempted, to covet them. And God says, no, don't covet that. It's an abomination. Burn it. I don't even want the gold from it. He doesn't say melt it down and make something else and keep it. He says burn it. Get rid of it. That's how bad, that's how offensive it should have been to them was to burn it. Deuteronomy 17.1 says that to sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is any blemish or any defect whatever is an abomination to the Lord your God. We know from chapter 1, Malachi 1, 8 through 14, that that's exactly what the people had been doing in Malachi's day. They were offering their sacrifices, but they were offering the injured, the blind, the lame, the blemished. And we saw when we looked through that passage why was that such a serious sin? One, they weren't giving God their best. It's, you know, he says, I'm paraphrasing, but he says in that chapter, offer that to your governor and see what he thinks. Right? Offer that to your, your civil servant as a, as a bribe or whatever you want to call it, and will they accept you? With, will they say, oh, thanks for this you know, lame animal? If you won't do that to a person, how could you do it with God? And then on top of that, what does the New Testament talk about Christ? What kind of terms does the Bible and the New Testament speak of Christ's blood as the blood of a spotless lamb with no blemish? That's the real main thing, as it is in most things. It's, it was supposed to be a picture of Christ. And so to twist that around and to show disrespect to that was a disrespect ultimately to the gospel of Jesus Christ by which we're saved. Well, finally, at the, verse, at the end of verse 11 in our text, Malachi tells them finally what this abomination was that they had been committing. He says, for, because, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. And what have they done? 
has married the daughter of a foreign god. So there, there, there it is in black and white. It was intermarriage with pagans. That, that, was the, that was the sin. Now, how seriously did God take this sin among the Israelites? Malachi says in verse 12, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. They're still bringing offerings. Like they're doing this and saying, oh, this makes it all okay. And so God wasn't even accepting their offerings. He was saying, get this out of my sight. Remember in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, so to speak, oh, if there was just a man who would shut the doors. If we could find one man in Judah that would break out the lock, come to the door of the temple and lock it up. Stop offering vain fire on my altar, he says. Because that's what they were. That's what they were doing. You know, to to commit such a sin with a high hand, which is really what they were doing. This wasn't an accidental sin. This was done with a high hand, and then come to the temple as if nothing was wrong was a serious offense. And God would visit for such sins, and was even starting to do so in Malachi's day. Keep in mind that this was a double sin. There was a double sin involved here. These men who did this were divorcing their believing wives in order to marry pagan Gentile women which made it even doubly offensive to God. Now, it's, it's easy to, un, to misunderstand, I think, our text or to misapply it and think that the main idea here was that they were marrying foreigners. Um, that was involved, but it wasn't the main problem. Uh, you know, in, in the Old Testament in Israel, foreign Gentile nations were essentially pagan heathen nations. So these two things, when you said Gentile in the Old Testament, you, you meant heathen, you meant pagan, you meant some, someone who worshipped false gods. Those two terms were practically synonyms back then. That's no longer the case now in the New Testament age. Why? Because the gospel has gone out to the ends of the earth. There's no nation on this earth where the gospel has not reached, where people do not worship the Lord Jesus Christ uh, with a sincere faith in him. But in the Old Testament days, in this age, that wasn't yet the case. So if you married a foreign wife or a foreign husband, by definition, almost without fail, that you were marrying someone who not only didn't worship the one true living God, they worshipped idols. They worshipped pagans. They were worshipping something that was offensive to God and not good for you to be uh, around. Now, intermarriage with those of a different nationality or ethnicity is not a sin, contrary to what some, I think, still believe in our day. But for a believer in Christ who is a member of, of God's covenant community to marry an unbeliever or a worshiper of a false religion is still very much a sin. And I think, you know, God does not change. It's important that we remember that fact. God does not change. What you read in your Old Testament, uh, God's, God's ways of doing things have changed from Old to New Testament, but God doesn't change. The things that offend God still offend God. The things that were abominations then are still abominations now. And I think this means we should take this this truth very, very seriously. This is something I think that many professing believers who I've talked to throughout my days, uh, have, they take far too lightly in our day. And that should not be the case. You know, if you are someone uh, who is desiring and seeking after marriage, that is a good thing. You know, um, Genesis 2.18, back then, remember God said of Adam, before the fall, he said, it, it is not good that the man should be alone. Right? In the Garden of Eden, 
Remember, remember the creation story in six days after every day, God said God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was very good. But before the fall, there was one thing that wasn't good. It was that the man, Adam, should be alone. And so what did God do? God created and instituted the covenant of marriage. He created Eve from Adam's side, from one of his ribs. And so marriage is a good thing. It's a blessing from God to be thanked for, uh, him for. Uh, if you are seeking after that, if you are single, it is a good thing for you to be doing that. Um, and God's solution to that, uh, that aloneness that Adam had and that we have is very often marriage. Um, now, there are still um, some, like the Apostle Paul, who are called to singleness. Um, and I, I won't get into that too much here this morning, just saying there are exceptions. But the exceptions don't, don't do away with the rule. Right? In general... It is God's will that most of us at some point in time uh, get married and have a family. That's just the way it kind of goes. Uh, we should not, uh, should not dismiss that or downplay it. Um, but if you, are, if you are single and desiring marriage, if you're a believer and you are single and desiring marriage or seeking after it, the, the number one consideration above everything else must be that you seek to marry a sincere believer in Jesus Christ. That has to be number one, no non-negotiable, nothing else tops that. You know, if you meet someone whom you are attracted to, even if every other consideration and quality this person has uh, seems like the perfect match, but he or she is not a believer in Christ, uh, you, 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 cannot, you have to cross them off the list. It's just the way that it is. You know, pray for their conversion. Pray for their salvation, seek after it, but do not do what so many have done. Maybe some of you in this room have, have done this yourself or have known someone who's done this. Uh, the old missionary dating thing. I'll, I'll go after him or her and then she'll become a Christian. Sometimes in God's grace, that actually happens. But God's mercy doesn't mean that we should make that our way of doing things, right? Uh, we should not test God in that, in that way. Most often, more often than not, what actually happens the unbeliever pulls the believer away from the church, from fellowship with God's people, from, uh, from sometimes even from the faith itself. That's, that's more often than likely, more often than not, what tends to, to happen. And so Paul, um, I took the title for the sermon based on this passage in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 15. It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. What accord, what union, has Christ with Belial, with the devil? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? That doesn't mean you can't work with an unbeliever, have friendships with unbelievers. It just means you, you don't really have any union with them. And what's the most important union you have uh, in this life is your marriage, your family. Um, does that passage apply to more than just marriage? Certainly. But it does apply to marriage. And marriage most of all. So we should not try to be wiser than God in these things. We should not be as some, you know, we, we talk about Internet lawyers. You know, some of us act like lawyers. We look for loopholes. Well, if God says this, but then he says this, I can find a way around the requirement. We shouldn't be doing that, especially in these kinds of things. You know, the, the commands that God gives us, um, you know, even when, when I'm preaching them, the imperatives, the commands, sometimes they can feel, maybe that's my fault at times, a little overbearing, you know, command. We don't like commands. I won't mention one of my kids' names. You can guess, but 
Uh, one of them, whose Luke's name will remain nameless, uh, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't like being told what to do. And maybe it's the way I do it that's very possible. But you know, none of us like being told what's what or what to do. But when we're little, it's harder. Well, we shouldn't act like that with God's commandments. God commands us what he does for our good always. Even if we don't see what that good is, God isn't trying to spoil our fun. He has our good in mind in all these things. So I'll say this morning, uh, if you have children or grandchildren, pray for their future spouses. Pray for them. Teach your children, your grandchildren, these things that they in due time might uh, seek to honor God in their marriages by marrying believers. You know, you, you kids that are here this morning, I'm always happy to see kids here. I, I know that none of you are thinking about these things in the slightest, foggiest notion in your mind. When, I, when we say marriage, you think, that's for old people like my parents. You know, that's, that's for the old people. I'm not getting married. We watch, you know, we'll watch shows, and I won't say Eliza's name, but uh, if there's ever a, a TV show and someone kisses you, oh, no, you know, she looks away. Uh, but someday, trust me, you will probably want to get married. And so now, before you're even thinking about it, remember, if you're a believer in Christ, that has to be your priority. You marry a believer in Christ, uh, and that has to be the top of your list. In 1 Corinthians 7.39, Paul says this. He says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the what? Lord. There it is. Paul says it right there. He said, hey, here's what happens in this situation, but the one thing it has to be understood is we marry only in the Lord. That's the most basic, fundamental priority and requirement for marriage for a believer in Christ. Uh, every other passage in scripture that talks about marriage implies, presupposes, or explicitly teaches this very thing. Um, there's more that could be said, and we'll probably go into some of that uh, later on, but that's, that's the most basic. If you get nothing else out of this message, right, get that down. We marry only in the Lord. Why is this so important? Why, does it, why do we spend a whole sermon dealing on three verses from Malachi 2, on marriage and unbelievers and things, uh, a few things that can be said first. Um, and, you know, we some of us have had this experience. Some of us know people in our families who have had this experience. Um, how could you want to spend the rest of your life with someone and seek to raise a family with them if you don't share the most important thing in your life? Right? If we don't keep that in mind, I think we do ourselves a great disservice. And what's the most, if you're a Christian, what's the most important thing in your life, which should be your relationship with Jesus Christ? Unless Christ isn't that important. I trust that he is, and if he is, that has to be at the top of our priorities. Malachi 2.15 gives us another reason. It says this, we'll deal with this, Lord willing, next, next time. Verse 15 says that one of God's primary purposes for marriage is raising godly children. Look what it says. It says, did he not make them one, husband and wife, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? Uh, and what was the one God seeking? What was his purpose for that union that he put them together? Godly offspring. Not just having babies. That's part of it, right? Godly offspring. That we would raise them up in the fear and admonition of of the Lord. And so he says, so he says after that, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. 
He says it twice at the end of the passage. Guard yourselves in your spirit. In other words, we all have a tendency at some point, at some level, to not think like this. To, to, our tendency in the flesh is to go the other way. So he says, guard yourselves in your spirit. You will be and can be tempted to these things, and you should not be. You know, I, I think we could all, all of us who have kids now or have raised kids, uh, it's hard enough to do what we do with our kids, to raise them up right, with two believing parents pulling on the same side of the rope. How much harder is it if, if they're pulling on different ends of the rope and pulling in different directions if the husband and the wife are divided on these things? And last but not least, and I think this is always the most important thing, Marriage, as we know, is meant to be a picture of Christ and the church. Now, every one of those pictures in our marriages is not perfect, right? But at, at its fundamental level, marriage is a picture. It's an it's a imperfect picture, to be sure, but it's a picture of Christ and the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, the Apostle Paul gives us a great deal of instruction regarding the way that husbands and wives, the way we are to treat one another, Husbands are to love their wives. Wives are to submit to their husbands. There's more that can be said, and then Paul does say there. But how does he sum the whole thing up? After saying all that, that we tend to fight over and argue over uh, what this means and what that means. In verse 32 of Ephesians 5, he says, This mystery is profound, mystery of marriage, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Your marriage and mine, as imperfect as they are, is a picture of Christ and his church. The church is the bride of Christ. We talk about that in the book of Revelation and whatnot. Um, it's a picture of it. The, the, that, that is what we are to strive to model our marriages after uh, by God's grace. That's what we should try to do. Whether you're, whether you're married now or whether you're looking for it in the future, that's what we should aim for as our, as our goal, to make our marriage uh, as imperfect as they are as a picture of, uh, a fitting picture of Christ and the church. May the Lord Jesus Christ be pleased to renew our minds in these matters, to remind us of what matters, and the truth of his word, that we might seek to please him and glorify him in our marriages and families and even here in the household of God. Let's, let's pray.